Welcome to On Scene First. I'm your host, Tracy Eldridge. With over 25 years in public safety, I am wicked excited and honored to bring you entertaining, educational, and empowering conversations with public safety difference makers who are harnessing the power of out-of-the-box thinking with the latest and greatest must-have technology tools and mental health resources to save lives on both sides of the call. Before we get started, a special thank you to our premier sponsor, Rapid SOS. As a trusted public safety data partner and the creators of the world's first emergency response data platform, Rapid SOS is sharing critical data with first responders like myself to get us the information we need to save lives and property. To learn how you can become Rapid SOS ready and better protect the ones you love, visit rapidsos.com and tell them Tracy sent you. Now, on with the show. Hey friends, thanks for stopping by. Today's guest is Kevin Consul. Kevin is a veteran police officer who experienced a fatal officer-involved shooting just six weeks into his career as a police officer. Join us as we chat about the mental health consequences and how he worked through his post-traumatic stress after the incident. Kevin may no longer be serving from the field, but he sure is serving those in it. Hey, Kevin, thank you so much for being here. Um, I appreciate you taking the time. I know your schedule is probably super busy, uh, but our friend Lori connected us and she reached out to me and said, this is a guy that you need to have on your podcast. And in our, in our previous conversations, I have to say I agree 100%. How are you doing? Well, at my age, you get to figure out how to manage things. And uh, <laughs> things are manageable. But uh, yeah, we're keeping busy with our uh, CAD to CAD product, trying to get it out there, which actually, you know, like we talked, uh, saves lives on uh, by improving response times for first responders. So uh, yeah. still working in the industry and public safety. And yeah, I've been doing this for many, many moons. Ah, speaking of how long you've been doing this, one of the things that I like to do at the beginning of my podcast is let my listeners know uh, who you are. How, how did you end up on my podcast? Because I love to talk to folks that are in the industry, all different areas of the industry, but I wanted them to get to know you just a little bit in as far as your public safety history. So the first question I'm going to ask, which I like to ask folks, especially somebody like you that has a really extensive public safety history is where was the first moment that you said, I'm going to get into the public safety profession. And then we'll talk about the specific things that you did. Okay. I don't know if there was an exact moment. There was just people in my life that pushed me to that direction. I had two uncles that were in law enforcement. One was a detective, one was a lieutenant. And I kind of looked up to those guys. And then the uh, guys on the police, I grew up in Michigan in a small city outside of Detroit. And everybody knew the police officers because there's only nine of them. You had the smiling ah, guy, you. the waving guy, the mean looking guy. Everybody knew who everybody was. And then I ended up meeting them as I was I because I was working at a uh, coffee shop on Saturdays, cleaning it out. And all the police officers came in there. So I eventually got to know them, became friends with them. A couple of them took me under their wing and got me working out to the gym. And they were just a really good group of guys. And as a matter of fact, that's where I got my start was they actually knocked, they knew I wanted to be a police officer. I was yep. uh, actually going to uh, college, uh, community college, taking criminal justice. And one day they knocked on my door and they go, how would you like to be the city's first dispatcher? I said, <laughs> sign me up. They gave me the job. Didn't have to do anything. They just gave it to me. Did, did, you, did, you, did you even know what a dispatcher was at that point? Well, of course I, you know, I knew what it was because I hung out at the police station. They always had one officer inside and one officer on the road so that freed up you know officers to be out on the road well they had me I was the I was a dispatcher slash clerk and that was in 1977 and I was just gonna say any, when uh, was that <laughs> all we had was a typewriter I, I always like to say our technology upgrades were when we went from a uh, manual typewriter to an electric typewriter and then the first time I realized how you can save time and lives on response time is when we went from the rotary phone 
to a push button phone because we didn't have a fire department. So any fire call, any emergency calls that came in, I would have to uh, call the fire department and they had a long number and you had to dial it and went around. And you had and to around wait. And around. <laughs> yeah, and you had to wait. And there's and time I'll, went around. That was, uh, <laughs> you know, it took time. Yeah. And I'll tell you, there, there are folks that are going to be listening to this podcast that have no idea what we're talking about right now. So yeah, exactly. for those, <laughs> for those of you that are very young um, dispatchers uh, in age wise, you used to have to wait a long time for the for the phone to come back around when you were when you were dialing. So that's that's very interesting. Um, so so you get your foot in the door as a telecommunicator. I did the same thing. I my dad was a Boston police officer for many years. The year I was born in nineteen early seventies ish, um, he got injured and he he left being a police officer, but he always took a lot of pride in that. And, and I remember growing up and not really knowing what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I, I was going to go down the road as a, as a police officer as well, but I landed as a telecommunicator. And I realized that night that anybody that wanted to pay me to talk for a living, that was the job that I needed to be at for the rest of my life. So, all right. So you are telecommunicator or back there dispatcher, right? Cause they didn't, they didn't even have the term telecommunicator. So how long did you spend in, in the dispatch center? Well, it was, I had the worst shift you could ever have as a guy my age going to a college and wanting to be with my buddies. I worked eight at night to four in the morning with, oh. uh, Mondays, with Mondays and Tuesdays off. Ew. My first class, I know <laughs> my first class was uh, eight o'clock in the morning. So I got about three hours of sleep, missed a lot of classes, but I had a lot of time to study because all you could do, not, it was a boring, it, nothing ever happened hardly. Right, right. And I eight hours of studying. So I got straight A's because I had nothing else to do. First time ever in my life. Even with that you know? attendance record, I mean. <laughs> yeah, well, they always usually knock me down a grade because I never came to class. I said, what's the point? You talk all the time. Nobody talks. So I just, I learned what I had to learn. So Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that. awesome. Yeah. So, so then you know, it was, when it was funny, we shut the uh, station down at four in the morning. I flicked the switch to the neighboring agency and they took the calls until it opened back up at eight in the morning. You know? so oh, it was, my it goodness. It was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Things are very different back then. I bet training was very different. I bet. And and I, and, and I know that we're exactly, it was like, there's the radio when it talks, talk back to you. There's the phone when it rings, answer it and good luck. Yeah. And then just log everything on the uh, log sheet on the typewriter when it happened, you know, sometimes yeah. there was nothing on the log sheet. And sometimes it one time, you know, one time we had an emergency and, uh, and, you know, coming from back East, they have ice storms and it yeah. was, um, it was about a year into my service that we had a major ice storm that hit. And I remember sitting in front of the, and looking out the window and watching the tree branches slowly. <laughs> Bend. Slowly, you know, oh man, this isn't going to be good. And by the time about by, I don't know, it was, um, I don't know, nine o'clock trees were falling place fires were happening all through the city. Yeah. All the electricity went out and I had the mayor, the city council and everybody working for me doing stuff as I was dispatching with a handheld walkie talkie and the, the phone still worked. The calls would come in. They go, is your house or garage on fire? The garage is on fire. Sorry. We had to let garages burn because yeah. we were, we had to save the houses. Yeah. And it was, it was um, 24 hours of the most intense, um, you know, me being, you know, just a kid running the operations like that, I learned firsthand on uh, how things can go from good to bad to worse in just a short amount of time. And we survived. Wow. I actually got accommodation from city council for the work I did. Nice. Basically uh, keeping the city from burning down. Well, and I, and I love that because I'm a huge uh, proponent of, you know, giving your folks kudos when they do a good job. We, we definitely don't do that enough. Um, so if anybody is in a director position, just saying, Hey, thanks. And great, great job goes, goes a long way, even, even way back then. Right. So, exactly. all right. So you're in the dispatch center. Um, and, it, and it sounds like you moved on some to some pretty intense and impressive things. So let's keep going yeah, down left, the timeline. Yeah, I left there and went to the sheriff's department and was uh, booking and receiving and then worked at jail, which I say was the worst job I ever had. <laughs> babysitting criminals. And I had the bad criminals. I had D block, you know, Ooh. and after six months, I go, nah, this isn't for me. So I went and did a couple other things. 
and ended up in Dallas when my family moved there and then tested for Dallas Police Department and became a Dallas police officer. Oh, wow. And that's where things got a little hairy. <laughs> so, so big change in climate, too. So you're going from from Michigan to Texas. Yes. So big difference, especially being right outside. I was actually in Detroit last week. I taught their uh, their 911 center folks, and it was it was eye opening for me because I come from a very small agency. Um, yeah. I spent 20 years in the 911 center, and it was it was just a very small agency. But I got to connect with those folks on a very different level. And one of the class in the class that we did was was on mental health. Um, the title of the class was How to Save a Life yours. Um, and we talked about how to, to better take care of ourselves as 911 telecommunicators. So for those that are listening that haven't heard the podcast before I left my job as the director of a 911 center because of PTSD and mental health issues. And it sounds like you may have had to do the same thing. So I'm going to give you the reign. So, so you're in Dallas I want you to share with us as much as you totally want to share, whatever's comfortable for you to share, because I think we're going to have an amazing conversation coming after that. Yeah, it was kind of interesting in the, uh, I think it was the last couple of days of the academy, uh, Corporal Parrott uh, told us to, you know, write down on a slip, slip of paper how you would feel if you had to shoot somebody and kill somebody in line of duty. And it was totally justifiable, you know, not getting into anything else like that. Just put down how you feel and take that piece of paper and fold it up and put it in your wallet and carry it with you. Because he goes, one of you will be in a deadly force confrontation within the first one or two months of being on the street. Wow. Everybody's looking, everybody's looking at each other going, oh, I wonder who it's going to be. I wonder who it's going to be. Well, of course, lo and behold, it was, it was me. Yeah. And um, it was, it was, um, I can kind of just go through it real quickly. I was with my field training officer, my FTO, and he was a badass. He was one of those guys that came out of Nam, you know, he, uh, you know, he walked around, you know, so, um, and they put me with them because they needed to knock me down a couple of notches because I was your typical smart ass and uh, <laughs> put in my place. So he was the guy to do it. And it was a Tuesday night. It was like two in the morning on a Tuesday, nothing much going on. And, uh, we just cleared a call and there was another officer had pulled somebody over on the side of the road. Um, he was, uh, pulled him over. And as soon as he got him pulled over, the guy took off. So we got in chase with him and there was myself and my partner, my FTO and behind us was him. And he had actually had a prisoner in his car that he had just arrested in the back seat. So, um, the chase started and, um, <laughs> Two o'clock in the morning on a uh, Tuesday, nothing much is happening in Dallas. So I think every police officer in Dallas was in the chase. Going oh, down wow. the because I looked in the rearview mirror and all I could see was lights and cops going down the other side of the freeway trying to get in on the chase. Yeah, you're like, I'm wondering so, what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, it's like, Word, something else is going on here. So um, we exited the freeway and ended up going through some side streets. And um, I, was, I was calling the chase. Dwayne was driving. And the uh, dispatcher said, looks like he's going home because we're in his neighborhood. And just as she said that, he reached around in the back seat and pulled a, a long barrel rifle out of the back seat, held it in, held it up like, hey, this is what I'm going to do. Oh, wow. And I put over the radio. He's got a gun. They put it over the radio. And just as I did that, I, re I remember reaching down to grab my shotgun because it was on the, we had it down on the floor. And I looked up and he had pulled into a driveway. And I remember just then, my, my training, luckily my training kicked in. I looked for cover. That's the first thing I looked for was cover. And I saw a station wagon on up to my left and I go, that's not a good cover because I didn't know what kind of long barrel he had, if it was a hunting rifle or a shotgun. So off to the right, I remember seeing a green 60 something five Mustang. And I go engine block, taking cover behind that. And as soon as I got out of the car, everything went into total slow motion. Everything from that point on was slow motion. I remember getting behind the car, he exited his car, racked around, in the sh around into the shotgun and turned to shoot me and I ducked behind the car. And as soon as I ducked behind the car, I could still see he started to turn to shoot my partner, at which time everybody, everybody had exited their cars and was standing out on the front lawn of this kid's house. Oh he was my actually goodness. a 19 year old kid. And um, as soon as he turned to shoot my partner onto the left, I stood up and I remember everything. Wait on front foot, squeeze, don't pull, you know, aim, squeeze, don't pull. And I did. And I can still to this day see the smoke coming out of the barrel in slow motion, just poof. 
and hitting the guy and him just turning and then everybody opened fire. Wow. And, um, and it turned out 22 rounds were fired and only me and somebody else hit him in the leg. Everybody else missed <laughs> from almost pretty close shots. So whenever they talked about how can you shot at him so many times? Because usually you're going to miss, you know, especially in those circumstances. <laughs> right. I heard 22 gunshots, but only two hit. So, oh my yeah. goodness. So then, um, then it just got really bad. So then I ran up and I'm holding my gun on him and then everybody else ran up. And I remember turning and running and just throwing my shotgun in the front seat of the first patrol car. I went and I went, holy crap, what just man? in other terms. Yeah, exactly. Wow, wow, which is, you know, and there was still smoke in the air because everybody opened up on him, you know? Right. And um, so I turned around and went back towards him and my lieutenant, she said, Consul, you okay? I go, yeah. He goes, you've been hit? I go, no, I haven't been hit. So then she goes, uh, my partner, my FTO and the other guy that was in the car behind, she goes, start giving him CPR. So I just remember doing the compressions and looking at the... 19 year old kid so it was like really traumatic the ambulance got lost and then his parents came running out of the house and freaking out you know we just shot shot the son on the front lawn of their home right and uh then they just rigged out and the the first thing the father said look what you did to my car you shot my car up because they missed him and shot the car up i guess that was just a response of traumatic thing that yeah yeah you know i mean so then they go, then they, then they threatened us there. We go, you killed our son. You shot our son. We're going to kill you. So they ran back in the house and then we had to put a perimeter around the house because we're giving them CPR thinking they're going to start shooting at us. And the ambulance of course gets lost. And, oh my uh, goodness. And they finally came, picked them up and um, took them away. And um, then at seven o'clock in the morning, we all went to, I remember going to doing the report and I looked at the report and they go, Council, look at the report. They hit me charged with murder. I go, wait a second, this is <gasps> oh, wrong. Oh my he, goodness. They go, no, you are charged with murder until you're no billed by the grand jury. He's charged with attempt capital murder. So I'm like kind of, whoa, 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 wait a second. Yeah. So, I mean, I had to go, you know, so that was kind of traumatic going. So, so, so when your instructor in the academy told you to write out what he did, did he fail to mention to you that when you shoot somebody fatally that you're going to get charged with murder? Of course. Oh my goodness. That that freaked me out. I'm like, I still have the report here, you know, and I'm like, still shows it, you know, and it's like, so I remember, um, so we all went out. So everybody that was involved in a shooting was in Capers Crimes Against Persons Division. It's kind of homicide in some agencies doing all the reports. Then it came around seven o'clock. They go, well, let's go out drinking. <laughs> so everybody that was there went to the bar outside of the. Well, because that's again. that's how they debriefed back then. Right. Like that's, that's how that's how everybody debriefed, you know, and then it was terrible. I couldn't sleep. I mean, the nightmares were just freaking horrible. Just seeing the kid every time I would try to close my eyes, yeah. I would see him to see. So, so, so just to recap, so you're how many months out of the academy at this point? Six weeks. Six weeks. And how old were you? Shit, I was 20, I think I was like 26 years old. Okay. Just yeah. kind of putting into perspective. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I remember going home that day and throwing my wallet down on the uh on the counter and then I went in and looked at it and I said, that won't affect me a bit. Come on, man. You know? Yeah. So what did you write? What did, what, what did you, what did you write? What was in the wallet? No, basically said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel any remorse. You just wouldn't, you just wouldn't feel anything. Of duty. And then it got bad. So then the next day I was off that day. And then the next day they sent me to psych services. So I was there for an hour and they asked me how I felt. I go, I feel okay. Just having a hard time sleeping. Oh yeah, that'll, that'll happen. You'll have nightmares, but um, everything else. Okay. I go, yeah, I'm fine. So I went back to work. My partner went back to work the next day and the nightmares continued. I couldn't concentrate on things. I was like kind of still wigged out, you know, and then Two weeks later, I had to go re- I had to qualify because it was my time to qualify. And all I needed was one more good qualification to get my bar. And so I fired, you know, my service revolver, which I had just switched uh, guns because we carried 38 revolvers. I switched to a 45 long Colt revolver, which was a pretty badass gun. <laughs> so, so when it came time to qualify with the shotgun, I couldn't hit the target. 
I could not hit the target. Oh. So I, I failed. They go, you can't carry your shotgun on duty. You can only carry your sidearm until you qualify with the shotgun. So it took me a month to be able to shoot the shotgun at the target. Kind of weird. That's kind of weird. Do you, do you, do you think, and I'm just curious, because as you're saying that, because obviously it was that type of gun that you used in the shooting, right? Or similar, similar type gun that you used Same in gun. the shooting. Yeah. So do you think that it was... It, it was, do you think that it was just part of the failure to concentrate, which is a true PTSD symptom, or do you think it was kind of intentional, like that your brain was, was maybe trying to protect you? I have no idea. From hitting the target I think, again. I think it was a little bit of both. Really. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, you know, I mean, I kind of got, I thought I got over it, but I was still on edge. You know, I, you know, just thinking about bad things happening and then they nicknamed me shotgun now hey here comes shotgun now then after i was able to qualify anytime i went to a call I go, this thing saved my life once you know this is a badass gun i'm going to carry this thing with me whenever i can you know yeah so yeah. um yeah so i just kind of went you know made it through and everything you know that was that and it was funny my attitude of my partner changed pretty quick he let me drive and he was nice to me after that but what can you say you know because <laughs> <laughs> he was he was feeling bad so um, so I want to go, I just want to go back to a couple of things um, that you, you talked about and we'll, we'll kind of continue down on this journey. But one of the things that you mentioned was about things going into slow motion. So in one of the classes that I teach, I talk about, um, the phenomenon of like telescoping of time, which is called tachypsychia. And basically it's, you know, everything just kind of goes into slow motion, but it feels like it's moving very fast. And it's just a very, a very interesting and weird feeling. And I do think it's important that, you know, 911 telecommunicators, first responders understand that that is part of a true stress response, right? I mean, that's a, that's a given. Yeah. You want to hear a real quick, funny story. When I was six years old, I got run over by a consumer power truck. Oh my goodness. It went right over me and I dove underneath it. Why? My mom says it was my guardian angel, which I think it had to be because six-year-old kid knowing to dive underneath a truck that's coming at you. Right. And this very day, I can still see my hands opening up. I had a piece of red licorice, a pretzel, and some coins in it. I can still see it opening up to this very day, slow motion, the pretzel stick hitting the ground, breaking, and the coin still rolling across with the gas station in the background. Yeah. That was PTSD. But they yeah. didn't know that when, you know, like in the early 60s. But every time anything has happened to me, and I had another deadly force confrontation and another one, same damn thing. Slow motion every time. And I hate it because you yeah. can't make it go faster. Right. Right. It just happens that way. And I think what happens too is, so one of the things that I refer to when I talk about it in one of my classes is that when that happens, we tend to get super hyper-focused on something and other important things can be missed. And so folks do need to be aware of that. And, and while I know that you can't change it and you can't speed up the time, it's just really important to understand that this, that this tachypsychia makes it almost impossible for you to think outside of whatever it is going on. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. But it's like, the other one I had, it was a call we went to. The guy ended up coming out of the back. He was a shots fired call. And it was the three knucklehead guys drinking and partying. And the guy came back into the house with the gun at his side. And it went slow motion. He raised it, started raising the gun at me. I'd already drawn down on him. Kept on raising the gun. I was, I hesitated. I, I should have shot him, but I didn't because just to the point where I was, but it was slow motion. I was looking at his eyes and I could see in his eyes that he knew he was doing something wrong. And just before he almost got it up to me, when I was about ready to pull the trigger, he started lowering it again. And then it went back in a fast motion and it, the gun was empty anyway. He had to shut oh, up. Wow. You know? But that was one of the things that I thought that kind of scared me that maybe it's time to take a break because even though I didn't shoot him, even though I'm glad I didn't shoot him, I should have shot him. Right. I should have. Right. I just, but I didn't. Um, there was just a feeling. I don't know if it was a good feeling, but you know what? I should have shot him. Didn't shoot right. him. Right. And at that point, I go, hey, you know what? I'm going to get myself killed if I don't take some time off. <clears throat> Before that, <laughs> I was I was out. I was on light duty. I had my knee blown out by a whacked up, drugged up, handcuffed, ankle cuffed 
woman in my backseat blew out my knee completely had to have it totally reconstructed. So I was on light duty for a number of, for almost a year. Oh, wow. And, and I was at a, uh, I was out at a club in Dallas and um, just having a couple cocktails, you know, and uh, the general manager comes up to me and he said, Hey, uh, Kevin, he goes, um, I'm having a problem with some guys out in front. Would you mind just coming out and just kind of standing by just in case something happens? And I go, yeah, sure. So we walked out the front door and I just remember looking across the parking lot at the guy laying across the front of the car with the gun that opened fire on us. Oh my and goodness. I remember hitting the ground and there was no cover and just trying to become, and that was slow motion. <laughs> Again, right. you know, trying right. to become part of the cement as bullets were flying over. Luckily, the guy was the worst shot in the world, shot up the whole marquee of the, the movie theater. It was an old movie theater. Yeah. Shot up the whole marquee of the movie theater before they jumped in the car before we could get up. And, and um, that was that was then there was that that deadly force, the other deadly force confrontation. And I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm not going to survive another. <laughs> right. Know? Right. I mean, so, do, do you know do you know what the odds are of of police having, you know, are there statistics on your chances of being involved in a deadly force shooting? And, and here you are at three already. And yeah. And the funny thing was, is I know the statistics because the statistics of my shooting from the chase, this, it was just a total anomaly. It usually happens earlier. It usually never involves two shotguns. It right, usually involves right. not a white kid, but you know, I mean, just the, just the whole thing was just a totally anom anomaly. And um, oh, and then I, I left out one part. So three days after I get back, go on duty, I come back home from work and um, there's two unmarked cars sitting in front of my house. They go, Consul, there was a death threats called into you, into a radio station. Uh, I think it was his friends. They put a, they're gonna kill you. Oh so my we're gonna goodness. hide you away. So they go, you can, you can have one officer go with me. So I had this female that I was kind of seeing. <laughs> they hit us away in Oklahoma with a bunch of beer. So that was fun for about three days. I go, you know, this is stupid. I'm going back to work. Right, so I right. Went back to work, you know, and uh, they didn't kill me. Oh, so my goodness. For me. So it was kind of an interesting uh, span of a couple of years for me. You think? So now yeah. you, so you go out and you take a break, you recognize like, okay, I'm not. And, and this is, this is back in the seventies, right? So is well, it, now this was, is, we're in now the this early is, um, 82 to 85. Okay. So now yeah. we're even, even in the early eighties, I mean, I'm, we're, I, I talk about seven years ago where we weren't talking about mental health as, as much as we should be. So in early, early eighties, you go out from this scenario and again you know i have a lot of telecommunicators that listen but there are public safety folks out there from the field um but so you you make the choice you go out where do you go from there do you do you go right to work are you not are you just taking a break do you ultimately end up back in police work or do you just get to a place where you're like mm, nope i'm done <laughs> this is where it gets kind of interesting I, um, oh, oh, it's just so you know, it's been interesting up until this part. I mean, let's be real. <laughs> I moved. Uh, I moved to LA and uh, became an actor. And uh, yeah, I I went. I was studying to be an actor. Then I ended up at this really prestigious acting school that I got in through a friend of mine. And they said that I was so bad they actually gave me free classes because I couldn't act because I had all these walls built up from being a police officer in law enforcement for 10 years of my life prior to that. Yeah. So their whole thing was then and like the art of acting and meditating. And yeah. that's what helped me. That, really? Um, that really helped me get grounded. That helped me open up all these walls that I built up. Um, it just really, and I became, started meditating, which I do to this very day. Um, I started earlier than that with self-hypnosis because I was a bodybuilder and a weightlifter competitive wise, and it helped me, uh, helped me lift more, but I kind of evolved it into meditation. So, so I advocate, I do advocate for med uh, meditation, but I'm pretty sure I was a ping pong ball in another life. And I don't think that I can sit still long enough and focus long I've, enough to be able to meditate. For almost 40 years and it's really still hard to quiet my mind because my mind's like, 
not quiet. Right. And doing all these tricks to get it to quiet, to stop negative thoughts, to stop all that stuff. They have a mantra to say stuff when negative thoughts come in your head. Um, when I still, when I'm out, I'm always aware of my surroundings where I'm oh, I bet. Over. and I've been out of this. I, you know, I left in 20, you know, 2004, the attorney general's office. And I'm still freaked out. I still yeah. have weird thoughts and stuff. It's just part of the thing. But um, I stayed, I, I still, I volunteered. I was on LAPD Citizens Advisory Commission in the, the mid eighties. Um, and then I, my acting kind of kept on going and going and going. I did a bunch of stuff. And then I founded a company and um, kind of got out of acting, but I then got appointed to the uh, Oceanside Police and Fire Commission and then became chair of the commission for five years, which was an acting commission. So I got to get back into it. And um, then I ended up moving back to Michigan. And <laughs> kind of funny, I walked, in, walked into the police department that was attached to the post office to mail some letters. And the chief was a rookie when I was the dispatcher there. And he oh, wow. like, we're starting a part-time police officer program. We'd love to join, join because you have the experience and you can help these younger guys because you're Dallas and all you've done. So I went and got recertified and went back to work as a part-time police officer, started their bike patrol division. So I got to ride a bike around my old city. Oh, and I rode wow. a little bike around as a kid. It was so cool. So I did that for a couple of years, two and a half years, then went to the attorney general's office as a special agent on their fugitive team and did that for a while and go, you know what, I'm getting too old for this crap. So, uh, and doing part-time making, you know, 17 bucks an hour, working full-time as a uh, IT consultant at Ford, making three times that I go, now nah, my family was going, you're going to get killed for 17 bucks an hour. I worked out of Detroit and the fugitive team and it wasn't the nicest areas. So I uh, pulled the pin and, uh, now I'm working in public safety technology, um, which I've been doing for the last nine years, which is really cool because I still get to help people save lives and help first responders do their job more efficiently and safely, which is and it's, really cool. And it's much safer. Exactly. I mean, nobody tries to kill me for not making a sale. You know, no. I always say when I talk, tried to talk the kid into dropping his gun, that was the first sale I didn't make. Drop the gun or I'll shoot. He didn't listen. Right. Um, so it was a sale not made, but now I don't make a sale. Nobody gets that. Right. That's, cr that's crazy. So um, and what, what is the company that you're working for today? Share with the folks uh, which company yeah, you are emerging, working for. Yeah, it's called Emerging Digital Concepts. We have a product called NGCADX, which stands for Next Generation CAD Exchange. And what we do is we connect the spirit systems, CAD systems, 911 PSAPs from various cities and regions so that they can talk to each other, see yeah. each other's units, uh, see each other's uh, everything. It's just yeah. like an extension of their CAD system. So it actually helps um, like on a, you know, when you have to call a neighboring fire department to help yeah. or, yeah. or see where units are because if somebody could be having a heart attack and your uh, ambulance or uh, apparatus is uh, five miles away, but you didn't know that there was a city right next to you. It was two seconds away. You could right, have, right. You know, and it's all about minutes and seconds, saving it lives. Is. You know, it, it is. Definitely, uh, on the uh, ring down, it definitely saves time of having to call another agency. We have a timestamp study that shows how many minutes it saves on this. So I'm back in that able to um, help save lives. And, um, help so, so I know one of the challenges that I had when I left the 9-1 center. So clearly, those of us that get into this profession or most people that get in, I'm not going to speak for everybody, but most people in this profession um, are adrenaline junkies. Like that's a given, like they like to kind of have that dopamine effect and the adrenaline release and, and, you know, are usually servant people where, where they, they're um, somebody of service. And I know that when I went from, being in the nine one center. And I even stopped, you know, when I look back on it, I'm, I'm a firefighter and an EMT as well on a call department. Uh -huh. And when I was in my mental headspace where I wasn't able to, to give everything that I had, I was, I was even withdrawing from the fire department side of things before I left the nine one center. And then when I went to work for rapid SOS, I was, I was now shifted. It, there's no adrenaline dump. Um, it took me a while to figure out like, 
oh, wait, I'm, I'm saving lives, but it's just in a very different way. Did you find that being a challenge as well? And the, oh the reason God. why, the reason why I ask is because there's a lot of folks that want to leave, um, the profession. I mean, what's going on with police these days, nine, one telecommunicators, everybody's shorthanded. They have no work-life balance and, and they're thinking of moving over to, which we call the dark side, but, um, and I'm going right. to talk about that in a minute too, but I think it's, I, I just, I wonder if you had that same feeling that it was like, you know, oh wait, this is a very different world. And, and how long did it take you to settle in a, a non adrenaline environment? Yeah, definitely. Uh, wow. That yeah, was tough. It was, um, yeah, it, it, <laughs> not having, not having <laughs> you weren't way. expecting that question. Were you? No, it was like, I remember, <laughs> I remember having to remember to stop at a stoplight and not go through it because we were running for the call, you know? Right, right. You know, just stop, get the lights, go through the, you know, go through it because, you know, we're running from call to call. And uh, yeah, that was like one of the hardest things. And then not having my weapon with me and knowing living in LA, yeah. looking at all the knuckleheads there, you know, feeling totally vulnerable. Yeah. And then still kind of suffering from PTSD, you know, always being hyper vigilant and, you know, yeah. just always aware of my surroundings and, going through scenarios in my head. What if somebody popped out and started shooting? What am I going to do? You know? Right. Um, but, you know, uh, several years ago, I actually figured that things weren't, things weren't right with me because I mean, you just kind of know, um, oh, yeah. going through my head. So I actually found a uh, <clears throat> psychologist in San Diego who had treated guys in a lot worse shape than me, mostly combat guys coming back from uh, Afghanistan and Iraq because, uh, you know, San Diego is a military town. And he had some, he was really able to help me talk through stuff and do some uh, meditation, um, tapping, which is um, you tap different points on your, um, on your body, there are pressure points. There's a name for it. I can't remember it. Um, to do that, to release tension and stress on different points in your body. I believe it's um, EFT, but I don't remember. I don't remember what it stands for. That's what it is, EFT. So I was doing that. You do a setup question, then you do other questions about how you feel. And it did seem to release a lot of tension. Yeah. And, um, and it's just talking to somebody that has talked to other people that did it. Um, you know, and just be able to get you to talk and open up and things. And um, it really helped. And um, I think that's what the biggest problem is with um, first responders today. They, they, you know, especially cops and firemen, you know, we're macho. Right. We're, we're not going to show our, our weak side because yeah. that makes makes us feel weak, you know? Well, and I think it's, I think it's interesting that you say that. So I'm going to give you the female perspective is that if we were to show emotional, we're going to be labeled kind of as too emotional and too right. sensitive. Yep. So either, either way, it's, it's, it's not what we should be doing to each other. Yeah. And I mean, and I mean, it just, it just has a cascading effect to just go, okay, the, the cops kind of, he's got shit going on in his head, you know, he's kind of messed up and, but, you know, there's like 900,000 sworn officers in the United States. And according to some studies, 19% of them could be suffering from PTSD and 34% could be suffering from not full-blown PTSD, but just some, you know, certain things that just don't make you, you know, complete, you know. Yeah, like uh, critical, I would say critical stress. But I think, I definitely think those numbers are much higher because we're seeing higher numbers in the 9 profession. So, you know, yeah, a lot of well, folks... A lot of folks don't realize the the impact that that it has. So, yeah. did you continue? Did you continue doing the EFT for a while? And are there any other tools that you used throughout that process? Um, I still do EFT sometimes. You know, yeah. just when I start having some, you know, you know, just in other parts of your life too, it works. You know, um, with you know, like health, relationships, and things like that. Um, there's it's um, it's a pretty good book. I think there's just one main book on it and it just shows you how to do it and do all different, you know, money things, relationship things, PTSD things. It really um, seemed to work quite well. Um, but um, you just kind of get through it, you know, and um, I feel I'm at a better place now from it and being able to talk to people. And then I end up as I'm out working in my software thing, I end up talking to officers every once in a while, I'll run into one and we'll end up talking and then bonding about it yeah. because they were in a deadly force. And 
there, it's funny, I was at an Indian reservation, the uh, Pueblo of Acoma uh, uh, agency in there in um, New Mexico. So I'm in this meeting with these all these tribal people and the Indian chief just sitting there with his, uh, the chief of police is like an Indian chief, not just not saying anything, just just a blank face. And I'm like, wow, this guy's hard enough to crack, you know, and everybody else is talking. So he didn't say a thing, just, just a big guy. He was so and we end up, he goes, they go, let me show you the dispatch center. So we went in the dispatch center and something came up about, I had an article published in police one about the anniversary date of my shooting, which um, it came out and something came out about that. And he looked at me and he rattled off three dates. He had been in three deadly force confrontations. Oh, wow. And right then we bonded. Yeah. We ended up talking about my date, 517. When I see 517 on the clock, which yep. shows up more times than not, yep. damn it, all the hell. It goes back to, I hate that number. Yeah. You know, because that was my shoot, 57, May 17th. Yeah. And he got railed off his days and we bonded. He ended up taking me through the whole reservation, showing me places that were just amazing. They 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 settled there in like six. 650. Yeah. <laughs> That's and, how long and, we've been there. And, and yeah, so it was like, so all officers, a lot of officers remember that anniversary day. And it's a bummer. And my lieutenant that um, was there, we're still best friends to this day. She became one of the top law enforcement. She was the international law enforcement, female all law enforcement officer of the year. Wow. Texas female officer. She was badass and she was cool. <laughs> to this day, she's my best friend. That's and awesome. When my anniversary day comes, some days are um, harder than others. Yeah. And um, she reminds me that I saved people's lives that day, that people went home and that I didn't know what I had to do, which makes me feel better, but not better all the way. Because I, so know, I, I have I have so many notes. Like I have so many things right here. There's so many things I want to open. But what you just said just gave me goosebumps is that the anniversary date. Um, and and I just want to point something out. So number one, first, 515 is is one of my numbers. Um, Father's wow. Day, 1998. Um, I was I was a baby dispatcher and uh, one of our firefighters, his his three year old son had waddled down into the pool behind him. And, and when our firefighter turned around, he was unconscious and not breathing. And that firefighter was our CPR instructor. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. And he ultimately saved his son. But their address was 515. The time was 515. So oh whenever I see 515, it is it is a trigger. So we will. T- well, I, I do want to talk about uh, triggers in just a couple of seconds. Um, but the the anniversary date, I think is really important. Again, I talk about a lot of these things in my classes and, and you hit the nail right on the head is that some anniversary dates are worse than others. But you have somebody that's going to reach out to you and check in with you on that date. And I think that's super important, even even this many years later, right? And checking in with somebody, and I just want to share this, is, is checking in with somebody who's had such a critical incident isn't just asking the question or, or saying, hey, thinking about you today. It's how are you? How, how, how truly are you? How are you sleeping? How are you eating? How are you acting with the people that you love? Because sometimes we don't even recognize it and we're lashing out at people or we're not sleeping well and or we're drinking too much or, you know, we're eating too much or we're gambling too much or or we're doing all kinds of things to avoid it. So I love that you have have somebody that that will do that for you still to this day. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and it's weird. That was like over 35 years ago that. that right. Happened. And it still sucks, right? You know? Right. I mean, uh, yeah. So yeah. the other thing, so I'm, I want to go back to the triggers um, because there are folks that, um, you know, when you talk about military, yes, there's going to be obvious triggers there. If there's a big bang, if there's a low flying aircraft, if you know there's a large crowd of people, there there are obvious triggers. But then there's triggers that are sitting under the surface and they're buried, and you don't necessarily even know that it's a trigger. And there was something you said earlier in, in the, uh, in the, as you, as you were explaining it, and that was your nickname, your nickname shotgun, right? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't widely held, but it was like, they, you know, they just started, you know, and I go, but okay. the people, but the then people, they stopped doing it because I think they knew it bugged me. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. 
<laughs> right, like rightfully so. But I remember, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I think we joke about it because that's what we do, right? We're gonna we're gonna make a joke or or we're gonna oh, yeah. make light of something because that seems like the right thing to do, um, because we don't want to feel the heavy feelings. But when I first started as a telecommunicator, I remember they had given me first they gave me the nickname Tony because every time I worked, I would push the tone off and you know something would happen and then there was a period of time where everybody was dying on my shift like every time I worked there was there was something and and they were calling me the grim reaper oh that is so that is so funny you said that it, but to me, it's like, you know, back then I was, I was a young dispatcher and I was just like, oh, huh, yeah, you're right. And it's like, but I do know now that when I go home, if I was to go home, I felt horrible. Like I didn't want to go to work. So, you know, we really need to be careful in some of the things that we're making light on. So do you have a connection to somebody oh, yeah, because, the Grim Reaper? Oh yeah. Because I remember one time I, uh, my brother who ended up being, he's a retired police officer now came to ride with me. And some of the guys go, don't ride with your brother. Bad stuff will happen. He's a, you know, because it's weird when things would happen, I would like be right there. I go, well, that's what you're supposed to be. I go, that's a black. He go, no, bad shit happens to you. You know, and I'm going, yeah, "Yeah, it does, you know, and it did, you know, I mean, I just think of all the times it could have gone the other way and I could not be sitting here today, you know, right. it just, I don't know. It's, I don't know what, what I attracted, how I, I still attract weird people into my life. No. Um, <laughs> well, you're stuck with me now. So there's weird. Yeah, see what just I mean? so you know, <laughs> if you're on my podcast, you're my people now, like we're, yeah, there we'll, you go. we'll, we'll be doing more things for sure. But you know, I, 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 I can't believe it's already been almost an hour that we, we've been chatting. This is, cr- that's crazy. Like it just, it, it flew by. Um, but I do want to wrap it up. I, well, I don't want to wrap it up, but, but we should wrap it up. But I just want to say thank you so much for your service. I want, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to tell your story. I know that it's not easy. I know, I know that, you know, I know as, let me, let me rephrase that. I know when I share my PTSD story, it gets easier for me to tell it, but it doesn't make the history of it any easier. Would you agree? Like it's, oh, it, yeah. it, it makes it easier to tell it, but it'll still be there. So when we wrap up, you'll go off and do your thing, but today it'll be a very different day than it was yesterday. Don't you think? Yeah. And you know what? I just got to say <clears throat> to the guy, people that are, you know, that are thinking about retiring and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And you say, you know, about trigger points and stuff. Um, yeah. Freaking sirens. Right. Oh, my God. And now I'm on the, um, I joined the, uh, it's called the, um, in my city here, it's a crisis response team. Yep. So we get called out with fire and police to crises, you know? Yeah. So on, on my day that I, I'm on duty for the 12 hours, waiting for it to get called out, every time we hear a siren, you know, now I'm like, oh, man, did I want to really do this? Because like, what am I doing? Get out of my head, you know? Right. But yeah, it's like right after, you know, Right after, and I still this day, you hear a siren, bam, shit goes off in your head. It's right there. It's right there. You can't get and, rid of it. And yeah. if you get, so I'm going to encourage folks to go back and listen to previous episodes of, of my podcast. I talk at length about the treatment that I did for my PTSD, which is um, EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which allows me to be able to disconnect from some of those triggers. So I call it magic juju. I don't know what, how it works, but I just know that it separates, it kind of separates the emotion from the event. And then that way, if an event, a similar event happens, it's not such an emotional charge. So I always encourage folks um, that if they're struggling with the repetitive things and the triggers um, to definitely look into that type of treatment. You mentioned EFT that I have, I have not done it, but I have heard um, amazing things about it because I was successful with, with the treatment that I did. So I, I recommend that. I'm glad that you recommended um, what you did, but the other thing I want to, you know, kind of point out before we totally wrap it up is um, that you're out there making a big difference on that crisis team and every single solitary thing that happened in your path path happened to put you in that spot. So through your entire career, you were saving lives and it, you're, you're 
first interaction may have been with with taking a life um but the entire career path that you took you you have saved thousands thousands of people and i hope you know that well i don't know about thousands but yeah <laughs> i just want to say this too um anybody listening to this podcast who is going through ptsd and mm -hmm. in shootings and stuff like that if you want to talk to me you can we can figure out a way um, yeah send me an email they can just re they can reach right out to me and I will I will connect them to you because I think the other piece of it too is there's a lot of telecommunicators that are involved in those shootings too right oh, and yeah. and we know I that they don't get the mental health resources that they get um, where there's a major event or a shooting and the officers are, are being told to take time off and they're having to do psych evaluations to come back on duty. But the dispatchers like, see you tomorrow. And uh, we, we need to get better at, at checking in on those folks too. Yeah, I had the, uh, I had the tape of my shooting, the dispatch tape. I, I lost it decades yeah. ago. But it was kind of interesting, <laughs> the calmness of the dispatchers and the, the uncalmness of the officers on the radio. Yeah, it was a difference between night and day. Yeah, um, it was it was kind of interesting. But uh, yeah, there's nothing like the voice of a dispatcher for a cop in the middle of something. I mean, I've been out in the middle of nowhere with a suspect by myself. The helicopter way up there can't do anything. Yeah. The dispatcher is right there. <laughs> you know, yeah, right, right there. there. You know, so um, yeah. So if so, anybody ever needed to wanted to talk, I've talked. You know, it's a, especially with like with other officers that have been involved in deadly force confrontations. It's it's a brotherhood of people because yeah. it's like one percent. I think the number is just like nothing. So um, it's hard to talk to somebody because not too many you know guys have gone through this. So if any officers out there. I uh, want to talk. I've talked to several of them. Um, be more than happy to, uh, you know, shoot the breeze and talk. Yeah. And, and so um, a couple of episodes back, I think it was two, maybe three episodes back. I did um, a podcast with Bobby Henline, who is um, he was in the military and he was injured when his Humvee was um, hit an IED and he lost the four other folks in his, his uh, unit. He was the only survivor. And I had asked him what his treatment was like, like what was his go-to treatment when he needed um when he, when he knew he was struggling and he said exactly what you just said is that sometimes you just need to be around the people that have experienced what you experienced. Cause you and I could have a conversation. We could talk for hours, but I will never know what it is that you've gone through. I have my own trauma. My trauma may look very different than your trauma. We may have very similar symptoms and behaviors because of our trauma, but there's nothing that beats being in a room and having a conversation with somebody who has, has, has walked the same walk that you exactly. have. Right. Exactly. Yep. Yep. All right, Kevin, thank you so much for, for joining me. Um, I see our paths crossing in the future again, and I know folks will get a lot from this. And if you do want to connect with Kevin for anything, don't hesitate to reach out to me. You, most of you have all my contact information, but in the meantime, stay safe, my friend. And, and I appreciate thank you for you. doing this too. Thank you for doing this too. Cause you're making an impact. You're helping people. <clears throat> That's, um, it's really noble of you to do this. So appreciate Thank it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for listening. Make sure you join us next time for another episode of entertaining, educational, and empowering interviews with public safety difference makers. Please like and follow me on social media at On Scene First with Tracy Eldridge so you too can keep up with my shenanigans. Thank you, heroes. From the bottom of my blessed heart, stay safe. Stay strong and stay here. We need you. For more information on Rapid SOS, our premier sponsor, and how you can get connected to the world's first emergency response data platform and better prepare and protect your family and community, visit rapidsos.com today.